Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Thank you for being here. I hope you got a handout. We're going to work through uh, several of God's attributes tonight. Before we do, let me invite you back uh, to join with us on this Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. We've got a special event. Uh, Peter Moon, uh, one of our church members, he's here with us tonight. He is uh, one of the chaplains for Operation Hill Our Patriots here with Samaritan's Purse. And one of the requirements to be a chaplain is to be ordained. And so his transition from Virginia here and finding a church uh, led him to that job before he had an opportunity to be ordained at his previous church. So we're going to ordain him. He's passed our ordination council. We're going to do that Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. So it would be uh, wonderful for you to be here and gather with us, particularly if you're an ordained deacon or an ordained pastor. We'd love for you to be here so you can uh, participate in praying over Peter and uh, Peter and his wife and their ministry there with Operation Hill Our Patriots. So it's this Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to look at God's attributes. When we think about God's attributes, we think about, according to Erickson, Uh, The attributes that are inseparable from God's being or essence. They are intrinsic to who He is. I've got several theology books on my bookshelf, and I've got one uh, written by Stephen Charnock, and it is uh, The Attributes, The Existence, and the Attributes of God, and it's about that thick. It's massive. I thought about bringing all of them in here and just showing you the books I have on the attributes of God, but then you would assume that I had read all of the pages in the books, and uh, I have not read all the pages in all of those books, but it's, it's a fascinatingly large book. Why? Because when we think about who God is, particularly with relation to His attributes, folks, we could write and write and write and talk and talk and talk and think and think and think, and we would never exhaust the truths and the realities about God and His existence and His attributes as they relate to us. Over the course of years, theologians have described His attributes in a series of different ways. His communicable attributes, meaning attributes we can relate to. His incommunicable attributes, meaning attributes that we cannot relate to. That they're, for example, God's omnipotence, we're not powerful, all-powerful. We can't relate to that attribute. That's one way to divide them up. I appreciate, though, how Erickson divided them up in the textbook that I've recommended for you if you're working through it, his Introducing Christian Doctrine. He divides up God's attributes as greatness attributes and goodness attributes. I think that's a very clear way of explaining them, or at least delineating them. And so that's the approach we're going to use tonight. We're going to look at several of God's greatness attributes recognizing that we're not going to cover all the attributes that God has, but we're going to cover the primary ones, particularly as they relate to what Scripture tells us about God and what we need to know about God. So we're going to look at His greatness attributes tonight and His goodness attributes next week. So if you've got your hand out in front of you, we'll jump right in. The first uh, greatness attribute is simply God is... And that is his name. I am that I am. I am who I am. God is. Folks, one thing we just need to remember, and we talked about this when we talked about God's name several weeks back. God is unique 
in that he is not contingent on anything else. He has always been, we'll talk about that, he always will be. He requires nothing else in order to be and in order to exist. When we truly think about who God is, he is not like us in any fashion that, that, that uh, I mean, he's beyond and greater than us. So the starting point for us as followers of Jesus is to remember that God is. He is in and of himself unique and glorious. And I hope that we have discovered at least a little bit of what that looks like over the last several weeks in our study of the doctrine of God, particularly last week, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Next, second attribute, God is spirit. God is spirit. John 4, 24 Jesus talking with the woman at the well there. He said to that woman that God is spirit and you must worship him in spirit and in truth. What do we mean by God is spirit? Well, if, if I were to tell you to close your eyes and imagine God, I'm not going to assume what would come into your mind, but some of you would think of an old guy with long white hair and a beard. We would imagine God with some kind of physical appearance. That's not altogether inappropriate or incorrect in one sense because the Bible uses language that says God has a hand. He stretched out the universe with his hands. The, The Bible articulates that God sees. And so we would imagine in that God sees, he has eyes. But the reality is in terms of scriptural descriptions of God. God is not like us in that he has a flesh or matter. God is spirit. And that means several things as we unpack that. One, it reminds us that God is outside of what he has created. Now, one of the glorious truths about God is that he sent Jesus to take on human flesh so Jesus could walk and talk among us as he did 2,000 years ago, so we could relate to him and know him. And we're going to enter into a sermon series where we're dealing with the encounters of Jesus. And we're going to see how he relates to us, which is wonderful. But God himself is spirit. He's outside of space-time. He's outside of matter. He's not contained in some kind of physicality. He's beyond that. He is spirit. And the implication that Jesus gave to the woman at the well there is we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Sometimes we, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go on a little rabbit trail for a moment, but sometimes we think worship is what we do physically. And certainly what we do physically can aid or inhibit our worship. But Jesus said, Real worship is worship in spirit, what's going on on the inside of us. In truth, what we're saying that is accurate and right, not what we're saying that is false. I'm going to tell you something. Let me just, let me just pick at you for a moment. I'm going to do the same thing with me. How many times have you sung a hymn and not believed what you sang? How many times have you sung a hymn or a song and like, I'm not sure? Or how many times have you been acting in a way that's in discord with what you're claiming 
by your lips. And what Jesus is saying is God is spirit. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worshiping God entails far more than the physical response that we give, whether that's in song, whether that's in attendance, whether that's in partaking of the Lord's Supper or baptism. All of those are elements of worship, and they're important elements of worship. But Jesus said the type of worship that he's looking for is worship that is centered internally, realizing that God is not a physical being. Another reason why this is tremendously important, if you go to the Ten Commandments, The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with worship. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, there's no one else you should worship. But what's the second one? You shall not make for yourself any graven image. You shall not make an idol. Our tendency as humans is always to put some kind of physical expression or physical appearance on God. The reason that's tremendously problematic is because God is spirit. He cannot be encased in matter or physical state. It's not him. So we need to see God for who he is. God is spirit. He is beyond physicality and matter. He's outside of it. We'll, we'll get to that in real detail when we talk about God as creator. But that's not going to happen until the fall. So God is spirit. Thirdly, God is life. God is life. Jeremiah 10.10 reads this, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this back and forth between idols who are dead and not real and God who is alive and real. And God is not just alive in the sense that we are alive. God is life itself. What did he do with Adam and Eve in the garden? He breathed into them the breath of life. God is life. Meaning he's the very opposite of death. That's why Paul could say in the last part of 1 Timothy, he is immortal. He is deathless. Folks, it is impossible for God to not be. He is life in all of its glory and characteristics. He will always ever be alive. He will never be anything different than alive. He is life. And for those of us that long for life and not death, if that's our longing, then the place where that is found, or rather the person where that is found, is in relationship with God. We want life, then we've got to be with God. God is life in all of its glory and all of its wonder. Not only God is life, but God is personal. We've talked about this, so we won't belabor this point tonight, but God is personal. He introduced himself to Moses as I am. Genesis 127, let us make God, let us make man in our image. Meaning that God, for whatever reason, to glorify his own name, to reflect his, his character and his nature. And we have to be careful when we say his nature because when we say God and his nature, sometimes we have a tendency to bring that down into our picture of nature, which is the universe as it exists or the world around us. And God is outside of that. So what's intrinsic to him uh, is that he wants to know us and wants us to know him. God is personal. 
meaning that the deities of foreign, uh, of different religious systems, such as Hinduism or Buddhism, they are impersonal deities or impersonal ultimate realities. They can't be known and you can't know them. And, And God is not like that. God is knowable. You can talk to him. He has talked to us through the pages of Scripture and through the personal Holy Spirit that brought you to salvation. So God is personal. So God is spirit. He's life. He's personal. How about this one? Psalm 90 verse 2. God is eternal. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's eternal. Timeless. Meaning that if you could think as far back as you, have, you could ever think into eternity past, God always was. As far forward as you can think into eternity future, God always is and will be. Some of us think we've lived a long life. Right? Some of us would like to live a lot longer. It's nothing compared to the time that God has always been. He is eternal. That has severe implications for the way in which we think about God and the way we think about ourselves. Some of us are always in a rush to get something done. And some of us are in a rush to get something done for God. We think this has got to happen today in this moment. If it doesn't happen today in this moment, I'm going to be stressed out and bothered and worried. And and if we just pause for a second and think about the little speck of time that we represent in the history of all things that have been in comparison to how long God has been and how long God ever will be, man, we are like a vapor, like a breath. A very small part of time in the whole scheme of everything that is. God is eternal. It sets some things in perspective. That's a good thing for a whole host of reasons. One thing is, you would like God to move on your timetable about some things that you've been praying about. I just want to tell you, His timetable is a lot grander in scale and in scope and in understanding than your timetable is. I certainly think it would be in the best interest of certain people for God to save them today. I've prayed for that. I continue to pray for that. You continue to pray for that. Some of you are praying for God to fix somebody in your relational sphere. They're broken. They are, they are, they are a sinful person. There's something wrong with them. There's something that they're not seeing that needs to change. And you've been praying that they would change. And if you had your way, they would have already been changed. God's perspective is far bigger and His timeline is far grander than what you can even imagine. Don't stop praying. Continue to pray. Continue to pray that God will work. But realize that God is the one who sees all that's going on in his timeline is far better than ours because he's eternal. Also, as much as you're praying for God to change that other person, you never know, there may be somebody praying for God to change you. So, you know, maybe God's patience 
is his patience for us to respond to what God wants in our lives. He, 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 that, that lets us know he is tremendously patient too. I mean, he let Moses act like a fool for 40 years in Egypt and then act like he was a nobody on the backside of the wilderness for 40 more years before he used him in his last 40 years. God's patient. It's a good thing for all of us. God is eternal. Uh, next, God is omnipresent. Acts 17, 24, and 25, Paul made this claim when he was speaking to the philosophers at Athens. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. Now, a couple things that that is not. One thing that that is not, God is not like the force in Star Wars. I've mentioned that before. It bears repeating. God is not in all things as if there is some kind of deity present in the trees and in the wind and in the buildings and in the people and in the animals. That's not the way God is omnipresent. One reason we know that God is not omnipresent in that category is because God is outside of space-time creation. You do get this. Whatever has been created, the universe in its grand extensiveness, as it continues to expand millions and millions and millions of light years, God spoke that into existence. He is outside of that. Now, he can intervene in that. He can step into it. That's God's eminence. But it's not as if he is ever present in every single thing that he has created. It means that he is bigger than all of what he has created. Do you get that? The reason he's omnipresent is because there's nothing that's happening that he's not aware of. Uh, he is omnipresent. We won't get into the, the, the discussion of God and time tonight, but that's another factor of that. Things don't happen with God like they happen with us. With you, your conversion, I'll use me. With me, my conversion took place when I was 18. So that's 20 couple years ago when I came, became a follower of Jesus. And now I'm a pastor at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. And hopefully in the next years, I'll be a pastor at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. And my children will continue to grow up. We think in terms of time like that. Well, if God is outside of space-time creation, time doesn't happen to God like it happens to us, which shakes the way we think about providence and sovereignty and predestination and election, which are topics that we are going to get into in the fall as we continue this study in the doctrine of God. But if God's outside of space-time, then those things operate differently in the way God ordains them, then we would think they operate as we experience them. Does that make sense? He's omnipresent. He's outside of all of this. The reason he intervenes in whatever he chooses to is because he's bigger than it all. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. Means that he is all-knowing. All-knowing. A couple of passages of Scripture. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power... His understanding is beyond measure. That's an understatement. How about this one? Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. By the way, 
that particular phrase that Paul uttered in praise and in adoration in Romans 11 comes after three of the most challenging chapters in all of the Bible, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that discuss the very issues of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, election and predestination. And Paul gets to the end of that discussion that he has written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written down some very challenging passages of Scripture. Have a read. Go, go take Romans 9, 10 and 11 out and read those and think, man, man what is Paul talking about? And what, he, what does he do when he gets to the end of that? He turns around and praises God's wisdom and God's greatness, God's knowledge and God's glory and what he knows and how he knows it. Listen, folks, God knows everything. He knows all the things that have been, all the things that are, and all the things that will be. It reminds us that we can trust Him. If He knows all these things, why are we fretting about what we don't know? God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. When He chooses to step in and intervene, He does so in the way that is perfectly attuned to the situation as it is needed. We think we know how God needs to intervene, and we can pray and ask God to intervene any way that we choose to. We absolutely can. We should pray, believing that He can and will. But we also realize that He's all-knowing. How He chooses to intervene is a reflection of His wisdom and His glory. God is omniscient. He knows all. How about this one? God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32 put it this way. Jeremiah said it this way, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God can do anything he chooses to do. Except for the things that are not intrinsic to God's nature. Let me give an example, a caveat, what I mean. God cannot sin. But the Bible has already said that God cannot sin. If God sinned, he would cease to be God because holiness is the very aspect of God's nature, who he is. It's intrinsic to who he is. We'll talk about holiness next week and God's goodness attributes. He can't sin. God also cannot do what's irrational. He can't make a rock so heavy that he couldn't lift it. I've heard those kind of philosophical analogies. God doesn't work with irrationality like that. He created a structure and an order in the world, and he operates within that to the degree that he chooses to limit himself to operate within that. Nevertheless, that doesn't negate his power. He is omnipotent. He can do anything. And and if you just pause for a second, and if you'll go back and read through the pages of the Old Testament, Daniel's a wonderful book for doing this, and compare the prophecies that have been made, that God said he would do this, God said he would do that, and to see how those prophecies came through, came true in human history, it's an affirmation that God is utterly powerful in his works, what Jesus did, such as his miracles or the rescue of the people of Israel from Egypt, and even in our own lives, think about all that God had to orchestrate to bring you to a place of salvation. Some of you have experienced God's miraculous work. And there's no other way to describe it other than God did something that is miraculous. Folks, he is all-powerful. That's kind of what I meant a minute ago when I said we pray too small. I don't mean that, that God doesn't invite our prayers about anything. That's not what I mean at all. God is relational. He wants us to talk to him about anything and everything. But sometimes I think we're afraid to ask God of things that are great. 
because we're a little bit afraid that we may be asking for the wrong thing. But, but you know, here's the reality. God can do things beyond the scope of what we can imagine. So, if I only ask God to do a small part of what I think God could or should do, am I really asking according to His ability? Or am I asking according to some false sense of my own insecurity? Which I think a lot of the the way and the prayers we pray is about our own insecurity and not about who God is. God's all-powerful. Omnipotent. Uh, The next one, God is immutable. If you wanted an easier word, uh, changeless. Changeless. Psalm 102, 26 and 27. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same. And your years have no end. James 1, 17. With whom are every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable. Essentially, that that means God does not shift and change with the tides and the winds of the events of our world. Some of you can relate to this a little better than I can, but even in my 41 years of time on earth, things have changed a whole lot in, in my lifetime. When I was born, there weren't cell phones. There wasn't the internet until a former vice president invented it, or so he claimed. And now everything, everything that we learn and do is cloud-based or internet-based. I mean, many of you, the way you watch television is streamed through internet. I mean, things have changed in just 40 years of history. My dad, when he grew up, some of you like this, they had to go outside to use the bathroom. I mean, I can't even imagine. Well, I can imagine that. I went on, I've been on mission trips where that's the way things were. I mean, things have changed, right? And culture has changed. I mean, the values in our culture, part of, part of the reason you're here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church is because we still believe that the Bible is authoritative and should dictate the way that we behave and what we believe. Because God spoke it into existence. And so many people in our world, the Bible is not an authority for them. They don't think that God has a right to speak about their morals or values or identity or any such thing. And so they're pushing back against all of that. Our culture has changed and will continue to change. God doesn't change. What that means is God will never cease to be all-powerful. He will never cease to be life. He will never cease to be omniscient. He will never cease to be spirit. In other words, he doesn't shift and change with the winds of culture. And and really, for 2,000 years of Christian history, that should encourage us tremendously. I mean, when Paul wrote the letter to 1 Timothy, which we just finished in our study on Sunday mornings, Paul was writing to this tiny church in this great big city in the Roman world. 
And there were only a few thousand Christians on planet earth at that time. And they didn't have hardly any influence whatsoever. And Paul's writing to them as if they're this pilgrim group of people in this massive empire. And Paul's writing them, here's how you live your life. Here's how you structure your church. Here's why doctrine matters. Here's why the gospel matters. In other words... What Paul wrote, because it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is timeless, meaning it worked for the people in Ephesus, and it's something we can learn from today. And those truths, because they're connected to God's self-reality that He doesn't change, still work for churches today, whether we're in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, or in China, or in Africa. And God works through the glory of His gospel in that, in that midst and in that means. And some of us look around our culture, our land, our nation, And we are lamenting the change in identity culture and all of the things that have shifted in 50 or 60 years of value history. And we bemoan that and we lament that and we're frustrated by that. And we're wondering, are things going to go back? Are things going to be changed? I just want to remind you, whatever happens with our culture, God doesn't change. And the gospel will be powerful unto salvation if we are locked in jail cells under persecution in the United States or if we experience more freedom in the next 15 or 20 years as Christians in our country than we could ever imagine. Regardless of what happens around us, God is the same. It's why when we gather as a group of people to worship and to praise and to pray and to open the pages of Scripture, the worship of God's people is to be a respite. It's to be a reminder that in this space, not because it's a physical space, but because we're the gathered body of believers singing and praising and opening the pages of Scripture out there and what happens in our lives that we bring into the worship service, it's largely irrelevant to who God is. It it might be actually irrelevant to who God is. And what we need to remember is that God is changeless. He's immutable. He doesn't change. So who he's always been, bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt through the miracles, Jesus walking on planet earth, healing people and showing gentleness and kindness, saving souls, what he did when he saved you from your sins, that's who he still is. And when we remind ourselves of that, and when we remember that, it offers us, if not a measure of consolation about what's going on in the world, it offers us true and real comfort. Because we don't have to be in control. We don't have to be powerful. We don't have to rule. We don't have to get our way. We can rule and get our way. I mean, I guess that could happen in our country again. Probably not. But it doesn't really matter. Because there's someone who's in charge behind the scenes and he's changeless. It provides a sense of calmness and assurance that no matter what happens, he's in control. And by the way, did I mention he's eternal? So we get to be with him forever and forever and forever. So who really cares what we go through in the 60 or 70 or 80 years of life? I mean, we care, right? It's our bodies, it's our pain, it's our suffering, it's our difficulty. But really, when it comes down to it, does it matter? Because we get to be with God in perfection and in a glorified state forever and forever and forever and forever. So what if we're marginalized here? I promise we won't be marginalized there. I mean, I like to be picked on the winning team. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're picked on the winning team. You know, and and thank goodness you're here. You weren't picked last. 
I don't know who will be the last person picked by God in a faith relationship with himself, but that last person picked by God will be just as joyous as the first person picked by God because you're on the team that wins. Sorry, I, I got to preach in a minute. I'm, I'm teaching a little bit and, and just, just reminding you. Uh, fat, the, last, the last attribute that we're going to cover tonight, God is incomprehensible. 1 Kings 8.27 But God will indeed dwell on earth. Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. L- listen, there, God, you cannot contain God in a theology textbook. He's incomprehensible. By incomprehensibility, Erickson puts it this way. It's the quote on your handout. When we speak of the incomprehensibility of God, then we do not mean that there is an unknown being or essence beyond or behind his attributes. In other words, what we're not saying is there's a part of God that we're not, we, we can't access except through some kind of special spiritual kind of, uh, you, know, you know, Gnostic means, meaning we got to do the right, hold our tongue the right way and go through the right ritual and we'll know this about God. It's not what we mean by the incomprehensibility of God. Rather, we mean that we do not know his qualities or his nature completely and exhaustively. We know God only as he has revealed himself. While his self-revelation is undoubtedly consistent and accurate to his full nature, it is not an exhaustive revelation. Further, we do not totally understand or know comprehensively that which he has revealed to us of himself. There is, and there always will be, an element of mystery regarding God. Uh, That's part of the glory of heaven, folks. I don't know what all heaven's going to be like, but I know for a fact that it's going to be us continuing to get to know God. Because if you think you've gotten your mind wrapped around the glories and the grandeur and the mystery of God here, you haven't seen anything yet. And the reality is because we're finite beings and even in a glorified state, we will still be finite beings. We will get the opportunity to spend eternity... Forever and forever and forever, not in a bored state of sitting in Baptist church worship. Hey, some, some I had my boys ask me one day, "Is is heaven going to be like our church service?" <laughs> and uh, confession, confession. Are y'all okay with confession? If y'all are listening on podcast, maybe we want to edit this part. Or I don't. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to edit this part. There are times, if you're honest with yourself and I'm honest with myself, our worship service doesn't feel very much like worship to us. What I mean is, we're just here. And we're sort of singing. And we're sort of present. And, and if you look at some faces, like I get to look at faces when I preach, and some of our worship team leaders get to look when you sing, if, if that's what heaven's like, some of us aren't doing a good job prepping for heaven. Okay? And I don't, I'm not trying to be mean or critical. I'm trying to be honest. Because sometimes we think that what we experience in this setting is what heaven's like. I can promise you it's not. It's not. Will there be song? Yes. Will there be praise? Yes. Will there be preaching? No. Because we don't need... To preach the gospel in heaven because the gospel will be there in person in the person of Jesus Christ. Will there be celebration? 
Yeah, some of you shouldn't have amen that there won't be preaching in heaven because <laughs> we're out of a job, man. So, I mean, I don't know what we're going to do. But, but we get to be in God's presence. But we get to learn about God in all of His glory forever. And, and what sometimes we think about is the gathered experience of the church. I promise you to be far more amazing and glorious than anything we could possibly experience here. Worship's important. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But it's, heaven is going to be so much more amazing. And that's what we mean by the incomprehensibility of God. He's mysterious. And even when we get to heaven, we won't know everything there is to know about all the things we want to know, and we won't know everything there is to know about God because He will always extend beyond our capacity. That's just not going to change. Will we know Him better, more accurately? Yes. We just spend eternity trying to figure out what that looks like. And that should encourage us, motivate us. Let me give you four takeaways. We're, We're at time, so I'll be quick on these. Contemplate God's greatness and be humble. We don't do enough contemplation. I could preach a whole sermon on this. We're so busy with all the stuff that we've got going on. We're so inundated with the information that we could receive that we miss the glories of contemplation. Pause and be quiet and think and meditate. I'm going to give you a challenge. You can't do this fast. Okay, you just can't do it fast. Take a good hour you're going to need an hour because you're going to need a few minutes to settle down. You're going to need a few minutes to work back up. Take an hour. And for at least 30 minutes of that hour, just meditate on God's greatness. Say, how do I do that? I don't know that I can slow down that much. Meditate by contemplating these scripture passages. If you don't know what else to do, take these verses that declare God's greatness and just sit and think on God's greatness. And when you do, something wonderful will happen. One, I think you'll experience peace because you're thinking the best thoughts you could ever think, truths about God. And two, you don't have a choice but to be humble. Because you're thinking about God and you're reminding yourself you're not. Second takeaway, declare God's greatness and worship. When we gather as a group of believers and we sing songs like we sang tonight and the ones we're going to sing Sunday, uh, it's, it's not about the... Fr- and I've mentioned this before and I'll keep mentioning this. In the fall, we're going to do a worship series um, and we're going to talk about what worship is supposed to be like in the congregation of believers. And it, it, it's not about the, the means or the mechanism of worship. It's, it's not about the strings or, or, or the, the types of instrumentation. They, they're part of it, but it's not about that. It's about the truth of that, the truth of what we're saying. And when we gather, whether it's Dustin leading in a praise team or Retta playing on the organ or whether it's Mike leading or whoever it is, if the songs are truthful about the glory of God, what we're doing when we are singing those songs And when we're participating in worship is we're telling God who he is. If you think, okay, why does God need to know who he is? Husband, let me just ask you a question. If your wife's beautiful, do you feel the need to tell her she's beautiful? Well, you should. Because do you know the smile that comes on her face when she believes that you think she's beautiful? She is. 
She's your wife. You tell her she's beautiful. Praise is just what we ought to do. And when we gather and sing and praise, we're declaring to God who he is. It's praise, right? And he's great and he's glorious. And here's what else we're doing. We're saying to everybody else around us, this is the God I'm worshiping. So it's an act of declaration. Why do we need to meditate on the greatness of God? And when you come in Sunday and we're singing about the greatness of God and his glory and his wonder and his majesty, that is what we as a body of believers are to do. Uh, Third one, remember God's greatness and trust. I'm going to preach on this in a couple weeks. The, 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 The opposite of belief is not doubt. The opposite of belief is unbelief. And too many of us confuse doubt and unbelief. We think we're not believing because we have some doubts. But a lot of times what we're really not doing is not believing. Not trusting in God. Your faith is not based on the quality of your faith. Your faith is based on the object that your faith is in. And if God is all these things that we've just talked about and more... Just tell you something. Whatever you bring to him in prayer, you should end that prayer with, God, I trust you to intervene in this situation or that situation. God, I trust you to do what's right in this situation and that situation. I trust you. Why? Because, folks, he is great and able to do it. Let me close with the prayer one. Consider God's greatness and pray. I mentioned this at our prayer time. I could say it over and over again. When you pray... Don't let your circumstances be the driving force behind the content of all that you pray. Pray based on God's greatness. If God is all these things and more, pray to him as if he is all these things and more. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's close. Father, we thank you for letting us be here. Oh, letting us be here. It is a glorious privilege to be in your presence. You are greater than we can ever imagine. In this feeble attempt tonight to walk through some of your attributes, help us just a little bit more to grasp how great and glorious you are. And I pray that as we do, Lord God, you would shape us by the very experience of knowing the God who doesn't change, the God who saves and restores and redeems. Father, We love you. We thank you that you love us more than we deserve. Go with us now as we leave this place. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 